0: Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield Podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Well, we all love a good political scandal, don't we? I mean, don't put your hands up, but I don't think any of us would admit to it, but we, you know, if... If a political scandal pops up on the news, that's pretty good clickbait. I think most of us are interested to find out what's going on with that. And one of the more interesting and bizarre, extraordinary political scandals of the 1980s involved the first lady of the Philippines, a woman named Imelda Marcos. She was the wife of the notorious Ferdinand Marcos, who was a uh, dictator that ruled in Philippines for about 20 years, and his regime was noted for its brutality and its corruption. And after 20 years, Ferdinand Marcos lost his hold on power, and they were exiled from the country. and, and shortly after their departure, protesters stormed the compound, the palace where they lived. and, and they made uh, an unexpected discovery. When they got to Imelda Marcos's wardrobe, they found shoes. Not just, you know, what's so unusual about that? I mean, everybody's got shoes in their wardrobe, right? But uh, they didn't just find shoes. They found 3,000 pairs of shoes by most accounts. And there was all kinds of shoes. It was, you know, high heels and flats and sandals and slippers and boots, designer brand shoes, and the cheapest shoes you could possibly, you know, really cheap shoes as well. She had 3,000 pairs. That's enough to wear and throw away a new pair of shoes every day for seven and a half years. And as you can imagine, people were outraged by this because this had all been funded by the Philippine government while many Filipinos went barefoot in the streets. Now, I don't bring this up to... to shame or condemn Imelda Marcos, because it'd be so easy to just heap judgment upon her and cross our arms and look down our noses and think, shame on you, and to think, there is no way that I would do the same thing that she did. And I hope that's true. I hope none of us are going to go out and buy, if we had the means, 3,000 pairs of shoes and somehow store those in our, I mean, how big would your wardrobe have to be to store that many shoes? But I think all of us You know, as as much as we look at that and think that's really bizarre, I would never do that. I don't think we're as different from Amelda Marcos as we would like to think. I actually think that her story is is a really good illustration for what I want to talk about today. And and uh, you know, what I want to talk about is something that all of us face, but few of us talk about. I want to talk about something that that has the potential to determine the direction and the quality. Of our lives. I want to talk about something that has the power to overpower your reason, your sound judgment, your commitment to your family, your commitment to your job, your commitment even to your faith. I want to talk to you about something that has shipwrecked more people than just about anything else. It has something, it's something that we have to learn how to rule over, or it will rule over you. Today, I want to talk to you about your appetites. Now, I want to acknowledge, this message is based on a message I heard uh, a few years back by a guy named Andy Stanley, and it was such a powerful message. It was the message that I was like, wow, if I'd have heard that 30 years ago, I think I would have done some things differently over the course of my life. But he uh, he shared this message, and, and it hit me so hard that I was like, man, I want to share it with you, because all of us have appetites that we must learn to manage or they will manage us. Now, we have all kinds of different appetites. You know, most of us, uh, when, when I say appetites, there's, there's two that immediately come to mind. Maybe you can help me with this. There's what? Food and what? Oh, what? Say it again. close. I was actually thinking of sex. <gasps> Did I just say that in church? <laughs> <laughs> Food and sex, right? Those are the two things that we all think of when we talk about appetites and it's very true those are strong physical appetites that that uh, that have a big impact on our lives, but actually there's lots of other appetites as well, emotional appetites if you will that 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 have just as strong a pull on us as those things. So they can vary widely, but let's, let's look at a few of them here. So we've got, you know, food, sex, and then we've got, you know, love, romance, companionship, right? We all want to love and be loved. We've got uh, entertainment. You know, this is why uh, Netflix exists. This is why the entertainment industry is booming and has been booming for a long time. Uh, there's, there's, there's power. You know, some people, they crave power. They want to be at the center of, the, uh, of, of whatever's happening. They want to be in charge. They want to be in authority. Then there's recognition, you know, a lot of us crave, we want to be noticed for what we're doing, and when we do it well, I mean, you see this with little kids, right, when they're like, mom, look at me, dad, watch this, you know, they want recognition, which is related to the next one, acceptance, you know, we, we all want to be liked, we want to be accepted for who we really are, and not rejected for who we're not. We have an appetite for fame, although uh, my uh, kids would probably say it's not so much fame that we're interested in, it's being an influencer, right? We want to be an influencer these days. And, and I think that's about the hunger for significance, right? We, we, want, to have, we want to make an impact on the world. Uh, we have a hunger for knowledge. I mean, this is why Wikipedia exists, right? I mean, I, I, hardly a day goes by when I'm not looking up something. I've got a whole, you know, I, I get frustrated every time I look at my bookshelves because about half of the books I haven't read yet, and I just want to read them all because they all look so good. It's that hunger, that appetite for knowledge. And then we've got an appetite for, for stuff. Melda Marcos, her thing with shoes, maybe your thing is stamp collecting or, or cars or nice furniture or houses, Whatever. We we can have an appetite for stuff. Now these are just some of the things that we have appetites for. We could probably come up with a lot more examples, but there's three things you need to know about appetites. First of all, God created them. God created our appetites. Appetites are not inherently bad. In fact, we need our appetites for survival. Without our appetites, we wouldn't feed ourselves. We wouldn't reproduce. We wouldn't uh, be very productive with our lives. Uh, the, the writer of Proverbs puts it this way in Proverbs 16, 26. He says, It is good for workers to have an appetite. An empty stomach drives them on. What he's saying is, you know, hunger, that appetite for food, gets you out the door a lot of times. It gets you out there. It makes you cultivate the fields. It makes you do, do things that maybe you wouldn't do otherwise. Our appetites are necessary for our survival. How, you know, like when your body starts craving certain foods, that's often an indication, not always, but sometimes an indication that you're lacking in some nutrients somewhere. Uh, it makes me think about um, these ibex in Italy. We've got a picture of it here. Um, these guys, you, c- you can't see the full thing, but they're actually on, a, on the wall of a reservoir, and <laughs> they've gone up there to lick the rocks that have uh, uh, mineral deposits, calcium deposits, and sodium deposits that they, they can't get anywhere else. And so they go up this really steep wall, and they're just barely clinging on by like half a hoof just to lick the walls. And, and, and they're driven there by their appetites because they know without that, they can't be healthy. They can't, their muscles won't function properly. So their appetites are driving them up there, and our appetites do the same thing for us. They often do things that are necessary for our survival. So we actually need them to be alive. We need to be healthy. Appetites have a legitimate place in our lives. However, while God did create appetites, sin distorted our appetites. Sin distorted our appetites. You know, see, once the fall happened, our legitimate appetites, they became distorted, which means that we are either overindulging legitimate appetites or we're pursuing legitimate appetites in illegitimate ways. And if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden at the very beginning, this was the trick that the, the enemy pulled on, 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 on Adam and Eve. He tempted them. He tempted Eve with the appetite, her appetite for knowledge. Remember what it says in Genesis 3:6? It says, "She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom. That it would give her. So, that, that, remember the story the devil is like saying, Hey, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll become like God. You'll have the same wisdom as him. And she looks at it, and, and, and the, what grabs her is yeah, she sees the fruit looks good, but what she really wants is the wisdom. So, she wants something that's legitimate. That's, I think, a, a real desire and appetite that God has given us that he wants to meet. The problem is he was, being, he was tempting her with an illegitimate way of getting that wisdom. He was tempting her to do something that God had... The only thing that God had forbidden in the garden was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, hey, if you eat this, then you're going to get that wisdom that you're craving. He, he's saying, pursue this legitimate wisdom in illegitimate ways. And we do this kind of thing all the time. You know, if we're pursuing success or... Um, you know, success or approval, we, we, we cheat on things. Maybe we cheat on our exams or we cheat on our taxes or we, we, uh, we, we deceive people that way. Or, or maybe if we're, we're hungering, if our appetite is for love and romance and companionship, we, can't, we, we pursue it and maybe we get into relationships with people we know we're not supposed to be in relationships with. We might have an affair. We might look at porn. These things are all ways that we pursue that legitimate desire for love and companionship in illegitimate ways. But we also overindulge our, our legitimate appetites. You know, we, this is, people do this in everything from chocolate to alcohol to entertainment. I mean, this is why Netflix exists, right? Is we just, this is why binging has become commonplace in our society is because we, want, we have a legitimate appetite for something to, to, to fill the void in our hearts, you know? And, and so we turn to these things, and they're good things, but we overindulge them. And here's the danger of distorted appetites. They will take you places you don't want to go. In Imelda Marcos's case, I doubt she set out to buy 3,000 shoes. I bet she just bought a pair of shoes and thought, man, that felt good. In fact, she grew up really poor and didn't have anything. And so, so probably buying a pair of shoes felt significant to her. And she liked that feeling. So she went back to it again and again and again. And pretty soon it just became an addiction, a compulsion. And it took her someplace she didn't want to go. I mean, think about the person who's obese. I mean, I I doubt anybody sets out to become obese. But but the the compulsion for food just kind of takes over, and pretty soon it's out of control. Or think about uh, the the workaholic who sacrifices their family on the altar of climbing the corporate ladder. I bet they didn't want to end up in divorce and be estranged from their kids, but that's where their out-of-control appetites took them. There's so many stories about this. I mean, think about King David in the Bible. His appetite for intimacy (laughs) caused huge disruption, not only for him and for his family and for Bathsheba and her family, but for the entire nation that lasted the rest of his reign. You see, if we don't rule over our appetites, they will rule us and they will take us places we never wanted to go. Secondly, appetites are never fully. And finally, satisfied. You know, your appetite only has a one word. It has a, only a one word vocabulary. More, more, give me more, more. And, and see, our app, the way our appetites are designed, they're never satisfied. I mean, you, you might be temporarily satisfied, but it's never fully and finally satisfied, which we've all experienced. You know, we've got Christmas coming up here in a minute. How many times on Christmas day, we have a Christmas dinner and we get to that point where we make the declaration, that's it. I'm never eating again. I'm done. No more food. I'm, I've, I'm stuffed. And then what happens? A few hours later, we're trundling back to the, to the fridge to make ourselves a sandwich, right? Our appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. And the lie, that where this gets so insidious is the lie that we're tempted to believe is that there is someone out there who can fully and finally satisfy my appetite. Or there's something out there who can fully and finally satisfy my appetite. Or there's some recognition out there that can satisfy my appetite or some some achievement that can satisfy my appetite, but it's a lie. It's a chasing after the wind, as it, as it says in Ecclesiastes. I think athletes experience this a lot. I'm always interested to read about what happens to athletes once they hit the big goal. The people that win the gold medal in the Olympics, the, the team that wins the Super Bowl, the, the guys that win the World Cup, what happens to them after that initial euphoria and elation is over? They find that they need more. I remember reading about one guy, Brett Favre, he was a quarterback in, in American football, he said he said he won and the big game was over and it was so exciting, and, and, and afterwards he just found himself thinking, oh, now I've got to defend this. Now we've got to win again. He already, I mean, within hours of winning the Super Bowl, his life goal had been accomplished he was already worried about the next one. Our appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. But the third thing that I want to point out is that our appetites, they, whisp- they always whisper now and never later. Your appetites only know one spot on the clock, and that's now. <laughs> they demand to be satisfied now. They, they, they want us to trade in the uh, ultimate for the immediate. They are not a fan of delayed gratification. I mean, I get impatient when I have slow internet. I mean, does anybody else here have um, abnormal anger issues when your internet is not functioning quickly? I mean, I just am like, you know. (laughs) We're we're, we're conditioned to pursue. We want everything now in our culture. We live in an instant everything culture it's, it's a now culture that, that, that is constantly sucking us in. I mean, I think of, of Netflix. You know, you, you get to the end of an episode, and then it immediately starts queuing up the next episode, and then it's saying, you can just skip the intro and just go right to the next story, and we just, we're on a cliffhanger here, and, and delayed gratification is just not an option at that point, right? You know, we're, we're gonna, we've got to find out what's happened, and then the next thing you know, we, one episode becomes ten episodes, and we're like, oh, gosh, I've got to get up in two hours, That's never happened to me, but, you know, I'm sure it might have (laughs) happened to you on occasion. But this is what it does. You know, we we do this in other ways. You know, we buy things now when we know we can't afford it rather than saving up for later. Uh, We compromise our commitment to purity because our appetite is demanding now rather than wait for later. Now, I could go on and on about this, but I think you're getting the point These appetites, these these longings of our hearts, there's something that every single one of us faces. And I just don't think I really thought about that when I was growing up, that this is actually something that's really important. All of us face it. All of us are going to have to learn to rule them, our appetites, or they are going to rule us and take us places we never wanted to go. So what do we do about that? No matter where you're at today spiritually, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we're all going to have to... and deal with and wrestle with our appetites. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then the challenge that we face, the hard thing is that that this is really important. This could be the make or break of your walk with Jesus, the make or break of whether or not you're going to fulfill the purposes of God in your life. We've got to learn how to rule over our appetites. And when I say that, I, I feel like what you might feel is a little bit of hopelessness that begins to rise up in you. Because as I said, you know, we, we've grown up in a now culture. We've been discipled by 21st century Western culture that has trained us to indulge every appetite and indulge it now. And to suddenly say, nope, nope, we're not gonna do that anymore. Well, that's, that's kind of hard. We, we haven't built up those self-denial muscles yet. We, we, need, <laughs> we need a lot of help to do this. Well, fortunately, Jesus knew how to manage his appetites. As followers of Jesus, we're following the one person who perfectly managed his appetites. You know, Jesus was tempted, it says in Hebrews, he was tempted in every way, just as we are, by all those appetites that were on there, which might blow your mind a little bit to think about. Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are, and yet he never sinned, which means that he had to learn how to manage and govern his appetites just like we do. And you might be thinking, well, well, of course he did. He's Jesus. Like, obviously, that's what he did. But, but remember, the whole mystery and wonder of the incarnation is that Jesus was a man. He emptied himself of his divine privileges and power, and he became a man and lived as a human being in complete dependence upon his Father for everything he did. He wasn't taking shortcuts because he, he was God in the flesh. He was showing us what it looks like when somebody lives dependent on his heavenly Father. And so, in Hebrews 5.8, it tells us that Jesus learned obedience, which means that he learned how to manage his appetites, and he did it perfectly. So, how did he do it? I think he used a lot of the practices that we have been talking about in this series. He, He as I said, his secret was that he was dependent on his father. He said, I, "I only do what I see the father doing. I only say what I hear the father saying." But how did that 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 intimacy with his father come about? Well, he had practices, and that's part of what we're looking at in this disciple series: is the practices of Jesus. So we've looked at things like prayer and fast, or prayer and Sabbath and uh, community, and uh, uh, um, what was the other one that I'm missing? Um, Oh, worship, thank you. That's the one. Yeah. so he's he used all of these things, and we could talk about how all of those played into how he controlled his appetite. But today I want to talk about the practice of fasting. Now, most of you know what I mean by fasting, but I, but I just want to explain it is, you know it's it's for those who are new to this, probably the, what the Bible means by fasting, because you know right now we talk about intermittent fasting, that's like a diet fad that's happening right now. but but fasting is abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. Abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. And it's the best thing I know to arrest our out-of-control appetites and bring them into submission. Fasting trains us to rule our appetites rather than letting them rule us. And fasting, you know, it's it's different. Just, you know, we, we, we think about, okay, well, I'm not gonna eat. Fasting is it's different than a hunger strike, which is done for political purposes. Fasting is different from dieting or detoxing, which is done for physical benefits. Fasting is done for spiritual benefits. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in the church, and I never heard about fasting it was, you know, we talked about it it's something that Jesus did at that one time before he started his ministry, and that's, that's pretty much all that we heard about fasting in church. It just is something that is completely faded out of something that we talk about, and it seemed as something really weird and extreme. Um, I had a, a girlfriend early in my uh, time at uni, which was a small miracle, but uh, <laughs> I, she, was, she practiced fasting, and I thought, man, that is so strange. Why would you do that? I wanted nothing to do with it. And then as I got a bit older and started learning about the power of fasting, I started doing it myself. And I remember my mom was like freaking out I'm like, you're doing what? You're not eating for how long? Why, why are you doing that? She was, she was, you know, just being a good mom. I to make sure her son was well-fed. But, but the whole, my point is that, that it's seen as something weird or something cultish or something that, that is just really extreme and something we don't need to do today. But I think There is so much power in fasting. It's like the most neglected tool, the most neglected practice in Christianity today. It's not just for monks in monasteries. It's not just for people in the Bible. It's meant to be a normal part of the Christian life. Now, Jesus modeled this for us, and we're told the famous story in Matthew uh, shortly after his baptism uh, after he's, you know, he's been baptized and he's been affirmed, this is my beloved son who, with whom I'm well pleased, it says this, Jesus was then led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, I love this, he was hungry. <laughs> a beautiful bit of biblical understatement there. No kidding, he was hungry. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. But why? Why did he do a 40-day fast? Apparently, this is what the Spirit was leading him to do. Apparently, he knew that he was heading into this time of extreme testing and tempting by the devil himself, and this was the practice, this was the tool that he used to prepare his spirit for that encounter, to rein in his appetites, because if you look at those temptations, really they're just appeals to different appetites, and saying, "Hey, if you if you turn these stones into bread, then you'll be able to eat. If you if you uh, bow down and worship me, then you have all the kingdoms of the world." That's an appeal to power. Uh, if you jump off the, the the roof of the temple, it, it, then you'll have a you know God will rescue you. You'll perform a miracle. But this was an illegitimate use of his power. He's saying, "Take that shortcut." All of these things are appeals to Jesus' appetite. But the way he prepared himself for it was through fasting. And Jesus seemed to have the the expectation that his followers would fast as well. Because, you know, we're told about this 40-day fast. I don't think that was the only time Jesus fasted. I think he did it at other times as well. And his expectation was that his followers would do the same. In fact, in Matthew 6, it says this, When you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled so that people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. (laughs) Now, notice here, first of all, it's not if you fast, but when you fast. There's an expectation that fasting was a normal thing to do. But in this passage, Jesus is talking to us about not if you should fast but how you should fast he's talking to us about motive and this is this is uh, what he's talking about here is is a bit of a, a strange thing for us but in that culture you were cool if you were super spiritual you were cool if you were really devoted to god and and and, and so what people would do is they try to you know prove how spiritual they were by fasting, and then they would make a big show of it. You know, they would, I, I guess kind of the equivalent for us is they'd show up out at work, whatever, with bedhead and unshaved and moaning about, oh, I'm so hungry, you know, and people, why, oh, I'm, you're, you're fasting, oh, wow, you, you must really love God. And this is somehow like, you know, it's, it's weird for us, but this is what was going on. They, they wanted the accolades that came from being super spiritual, Jesus wasn't having any of that. He calls those people hypocrites. He's like, this is not the way to fast. If you're fasting, your motive in fasting is to impress other people, then you just don't fast. Don't do that. Instead, he gives them a different approach. He says this, when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. Then no one will notice that you're fasting except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything, will reward you. So again, when you fast, not if you fast. And he, and he's saying, look, this is something about, there, there's something here that that is between you and God. It's not about what other people think of you. So he, he instructed you to keep it quiet. And now I've been uh, in in uh, circles where people fast a lot and <laughs> they take this to a really kind of silly extreme and you'll ask them if they want something to eat and they'll be like, no, I'm, uh, I'm not eating. And they act really awkward about it as if like somehow that, that that's going to like, uh, you know, help them fulfill this command. Jesus isn't saying you can't tell somebody you're fasting. He's just saying this isn't something you use to show off with people all right? So if if you're fasting and somebody wants to serve you a meal, you can say, hey, I'm I'm fasting right now. and, And that's all you need to say. It's not something you have to be awkward about. But what I really want you to notice is that last phrase there, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, Jesus is giving us this powerful promise that there is a reward for setting aside the appetites and pleasures of this world in order to seek God through fasting. And the rewards far outweigh the difficulties. The reward of fasting is that it tenderizes our hearts to God. It enables us to experience more of His presence, more of His voice, and more of His freedom. And and every time I fast, now I can't say that every time I fast that that's like my experience in the moment. (laughs) In the moment, I'm often just like, I'm so hungry. As you're fasting, God is transforming. He's working in your heart, and you come out the other end with your heart more tender to God, more in tune with His voice, more aware of His presence. So, there's another reason, though, I want to mention before we talk about how we fast, and that is fasting teaches us to deny ourselves. Fasting trains us to deny ourselves. And that's particularly relevant to us as followers of Jesus because, remember, we talked about this in week two. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Jesus is saying that if we want to be his disciples, and that's what this whole series is about, is being a disciple of Jesus, learning to be with him, to become like him and do what he did. If we want to do that, denying yourself is foundational. It's fundamental to what it means to follow Jesus. And so uh, we have to learn how to do that, and fasting is one of the best practices I know. As I said before, you know, we live in this self-indulgent culture, and, and learning how we don't, we don't have self-denial muscles. We have to actually build those up. We have to learn what it means to deny our appetites, and we have to build up those muscles of self-denial, and fasting is one of the main ways that we do that. So, as we close here, how do you fast? What, what is the method to it? I think when you look at it, fasting really boils down to two things, abstaining and feasting. Let me explain what I mean by those. You know, First of all, fasting always uh, involves abstaining from something. As I said before, Fasting is about abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. That's the fundamental way that we think about it. And and that is always good. No matter what appetite you're wrestling with, fasting from food is a powerful tool that you can use. But it's actually, I've spoken on that before. I actually spoke on this about a year ago. So you can go back and listen to uh, what it means to fast from food and some of the things you need to keep in mind when you're doing that. But today I want to broaden that definition a little bit because I actually think there's a whole lot more ways to fast than just fasting from food. And actually, I want to say fasting uh, is about abstaining from any appetite for a spiritual purpose. Any appetite. All those appetites that we looked at earlier, uh, that anything that might be ruling you, anything that might be interfering with your relationship with God, with your relationship with others, anything you have an unhealthy relationship with, just as we have a wide variety of appetites, there are a wide variety of methods that we can employ to fast. For example, if you're addicted to your phone, maybe you need to turn your phone off for a day and put it away. Now that sounds easy to do, but just try it and see how often you reach for your pocket and and, and how much you crave being able to just check your phone real quick. I was talking to someone this week that, you know, you might just set aside certain apps. I was talking to someone this week, he doesn't check YouTube or news apps during the week because they're his go-to thing. They're distracting him from his work. And he realized those things had too much of a hold on him. So for those five days, Monday to Friday, he doesn't check them. Or or maybe you're addicted to entertainment. And maybe you need to take a break from uh, all the, the media that you're consuming. Maybe you need to unsubscribe to Netflix for a while. Maybe you need to just unplug your, your TV for a while. Whatever it is that you go to. I think a lot of us are addicted to noise. I mean, I mentioned earlier that uh, in, in a previous message that I am always listening to podcasts. I'm, you know, just trying to get more and more information all the time. And I realize I'm addicted to noise. And I think a lot of us, the best thing we could do is actually learn how to practice silence. And that's a scary thing for us. We're going to come back to that later in the series. But, but I think that is a type of fast, is just turning off all the noise. Or maybe you're addicted to relationships. Maybe you're going from one relationship to the next, and the best thing you could do is just pause on all relationships for a season and let God work in your heart and learning how to be satisfied with Him before you enter into a relationship. Or some of us, were addicted to buying stuff. You know, we we love the feeling of buying things, and and maybe the best thing that, that you could do is just stop for a season, not buy anything new for a while, Lauren was telling me about somebody that she follows on social media that, that has a, what was it, it was a no-spending November, <laughs> which, in which she only spends money on utilities and food. That's it. She doesn't buy anything else. As a way of just breaking this addiction to buying new or buying more. I know one guy who uh, really loved clothes, and he, he loved fashion and wanted to look good, and, and he felt like God said to him, hey, I just want you to wear white T-shirts, an extended period of time. And he worked in a job where he could do that. And he just wore white t-shirts for like a year or 18 months or something like that, just to break the hold of fashion on his life. I know another guy that was really into fashion as well, and he he's a pastor now, but he really loved, he talks about how he loved his like corduroys. Like they were just his like favorite pair of clothing. And God told him, I want you to give those away. And he was like just It was agony for him to give those away. And, and then he ended up giving away most of his wardrobe because these things were ruling him rather than him ruling it. Those are forms of fasting. You know, I think there's people who often get into a rut of negative thinking and complaining. And so uh, there's some people that, that they do a negativity fast every Lent where they just discipline themselves to not complain and not be negative about stuff all the time, to, to train their minds for a different way of thinking. I told you a story earlier in the series about Dallas Willard, the Christian philosopher who was also a professor at the University of Southern California. And uh, he was teaching one of his classes, and, and a student aggressively challenged him with some really questionable facts. But instead of putting the young man in his place, he, Willard just ended the class for today, for the day. And somebody came up to him and said, Hey, why, why'd you let that go? Like, he, what he's saying is nonsense. You could have easily corrected him. And he said, I'm practicing the discipline of not having the last word. That's a form of fasting. He was denying his appetite to be right, to have the last word, and that's a form of pride. And so he was denying his pride that opportunity. And, you know, have you ever been around people that like to be right all the time and like to have the last word on everything? It's aggravating, isn't it? And if you're that person, I just want to challenge you. What if you chose, maybe for a month or two, to, to not have the last word on something? You just keep your mouth shut when you would love to. And you got that last zinger. See, I can never be the guy with the last word because I'm always great at coming up with the last word 10 minutes after the conversation's over. But some of you guys are amazing at having that zinger in the moment. And maybe the best thing you can do is hold back on that. Or or maybe when you want to be right about something, you want to prove the other person wrong, maybe you just need to hold back. I wonder what would happen if you did that. So here's my challenge to you. It's a challenge for all of us. I want you to ask God three questions. What appetites are ruling me? Now, some of you know right away what I'm talking about, and some of you are like, I don't know, I don't have any appetites that are ruling me. If you don't know, ask the people around you. They'll be able to tell you what appetites might have a hold on your life. Uh, secondly, ask, how should I fast from them? Ask God, how do you want me to abstain from these things? And he may direct you, uh, there's all kinds of creative, he may tell you to go on a food fast, even if it's not food that you have the issue with, but he also might tell you to do something else. Ask him, see what he wants you to do. And then I want you to ask him who can hold me accountable for this? Because here's the, here's the kicker with fasting. Fasting by yourself really doesn't work very well because we get to that point where we're really hungry or we're, you know, we really want whatever it is we're fasting from. And it's just so easy to justify and rationalize and say, you know what, I, I can stop now. It's okay. There's grace. It'll be all right. And that's why when we have people that, that join us er, and that, that are holding us accountable, it makes it so much easier for us to actually fulfill our fast. So those are really easy questions, but but i I I, I if you just take it to the lord he's going to show you what to do now the last thing i want to say is that remember fasting isn't just about abstaining but it's also about feasting so if you're just abstaining that's just self-denial but really the kind of fasting that we're talking about is actually we in, we delight ourselves in the lord we're actually feasting upon the lord when we're denying ourselves whatever it is that that appetite is craving and this makes sense you know because whatever you starve, it's going to wither, but whatever you feed will grow. So if you're starving an appetite, it it begins to lose its hold on you, but whatever you feed will grow. So just starving that appetite doesn't work very well. We've got to be filled with something. And this is where fasting is really powerful, is taking that time. See, that's what we're doing when we fast. We're making time and space in our lives for God. And so when we do that, we begin to feed what the Spirit of God is doing in us, we begin to feed the truth of God in our hearts, and we begin to hunger for Him. I love how um, uh, St. Augustine put it, he said it this way, that you have made us us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And what St. Augustine is saying there is that we have an appetite for God. This is the most important thing I want you to get out of today is that you might think, well, I've got an appetite for this and that, and aren't I a bad person because I want all these things, but all of us deep down in our hearts have an appetite for God, and we just need to make space for it. A lot of us have lost touch with that, and you might think, I don't really have an appetite. You do. You just got to clear out some of the other things that are taking the place of that. All of us, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Psalm 42 says a similar thing. The psalmist writes, As The deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? They're saying that, that, that we have this deep hunger and longing for God. And so, when we fast, what we're doing is, is when that hunger pain comes up, when that pain of, of addiction that we have to whatever it is that we're addicted to starts to rise up within us, and we're feeling that itch to do whatever it is that we want to do, that's when we use these other practices of Jesus. We turn to God. We, we say to him, we worship Him. We we pray. We spend time in Sabbath and solitude. We we look at the scriptures. We we dig deep into God, and we let Him sustain us and strengthen us, and fill our hearts. And when we do that, the, the the grip that the the appetites that that we're fighting with begins to relax, and we begin to be begin to rule over them like we should. Church, we need this. We need this because all of us, every single one of us, faces this battle, and it will derail you. As I keep saying. Your appetites, will you've got to rule them or they're going to rule you and take you places you don't want to go. And I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss what God has in store for your life. And tragically, many people have let appetites derail them from the great things that God has in store for them, from the abundant life that God wants to give you. So I want to encourage you. If if fasting sounds like a, a completely foreign concept, like a really strange idea, I want to encourage you to give it a go. Maybe you just do it for half a day. Maybe you just do it for one day, two days. This doesn't have to be some 40-day epic thing that you start off. You've got to build up those muscles for things like that. I just want to encourage you to start fasting in some way and see what God does with your life. Let me pray for you. Holy Spirit, we need your help. Lord, we have been trained to indulge ourselves. We've been trained by this now culture, and Lord, saying no to that feels impossible. But I thank you that the fruit of your Spirit is self-control, Lord. And Lord, I pray that, that as we uh, learn, walk with you, as we are being trained by you as your apprentices and as your disciples, that you would help us, God, to, to learn how to deny ourselves and to, instead of stuffing all of our soul with all of these other things, Lord, I pray that we would be filled with you. God, show us the power of fasting and show us the power of feasting on you. God, set us free from the places where appetites have too great a hold on our lives. Set us free. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the worship team comes, uh, we're gonna take some time to just close in worship, but before we do that, I wanna just take a minute and I'm going to put those questions back up on the screen. And I actually just want you to start that dialogue with God now. And that might be a weird thing to say because you're like, hey, God, God can speak. Yes, he can speak to our hearts. And he, if you'll have things that will come to mind. And that is just go with it. Just see. That's God speaking to you in one way or another. So we're gonna take about 60 seconds here and just start that conversation. And this may be a conversation that continues after church, but I, I don't wanna miss this moment. I want you to kind of stay with God and, and, and actually ask him some of these questions now and see what he has to say to you. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.